Hi, everybody. This is Christian Cison coming to you live from the Kill Room. This is the holiday edition of the Third Fridays podcast. And I want to welcome uh, my partner, Declan Gorley, to the show. How are you doing today, Declan? I was doing good until you said I was in the Kill Room. What is that? <laughs> that's, I guess that's true. I, I never really give an intro before saying that. Uh, I do have to say that being in this room kind of reminds me of those Dexter scenes. I don't know if you've seen that show where he kind of just out puts his victim on a table and it's just a blank room with no windows just like this. So uh, if you survive, then, you know, maybe we don't have to call it a kill room. Sounds good. Not a Dexter. Not a Dexter watcher. Okay. All right. Um. We will begin this by recapping last month's podcast. Uh, Chris Major was my guest at that time, and we talked about loss transfer. It's actually uh, one of the more rare uh, litigation uh, scenarios in workers' compensation that we think can actually provide a help to self-insurers and carriers. So if you want to give that a quick listen and let us know if you have any questions, feel free. But for today, we're going to talk about permanency. Now, Declan was actually my guest uh, a few months back, maybe maybe one month back, when we talked about uh, how we defend against schedule losses of use. And that was actually before the first draft of the guidelines came out. So we had an opportunity to discuss the April 2017 bill that was passed by the state. And it essentially said that the current guidelines were going to be scrapped in some shape, way, or form, right? Yeah, basically it mandated that we that the, the board implement new guidelines, taking into consideration the fact that there's advancements in medical technology and that presumably, although this is never the case in workers' comp, when someone has a surgery or goes through medical treatment for over a year, that they're going to get better. Right, that and and that the like a normal recovery time is actually shorter than how than the amount of time that the cl- workers' compensation claimant stays out of work, right? Because if you're doing it for non-work-related purposes, you actually probably want to go back to work, or at least want to be released as some type of activity. But soapbox time. Let's let's get off that. So the initial draft guidelines came out, and we actually did a webinar on uh, the changes, and we felt, along with most people, that it helped employers uh, carry yourself in shorts. We talked about essentially how it created a bucket or a category system where uh, the provider or the IME doctor would, ha- would actually have to decide whether an injury was mild, moderate, or marked, and then within that bucket, you decide whether range of motion, pain, and strength brings you to the maximum of that of that category or to the minimum. And what it did was it really helped employers whose biggest problem were schedule loss of use cases for claimants that didn't really lose a lot of time from work, right? Like that's what we've heard is is a big problem for employers. Yeah, I think one of the main pushbacks and the reasons why employers and carriers were pushing, uh, I think this takes place a lot with union union employees, is when they would have a large schedule loss of use never miss a day of work or miss very little time from work, go out, get a massive lump sum settlement a year or two years after the injury, and then go back to work. And then potentially, in a lot of these cases, it seems like a year or two later, uh, they're repeating the situation with a different body part. And 
a new schedule loss of use and a new lump sum. And I think the, there was a reason why there was a lot of pushback was because they saw that these claimants were not missing much time at all, if any, and they were getting massive lump sums for schedule loss of use. And I think that in part, that was what the board was attempting to do when they issued the first set of the draft of guidelines. Especially when they weren't on a reduced earnings uh, contract or, or salary when they, when they came back or if they ever lost time at all, uh, sometimes you might have cases where they made more money or were performing more duties after the accident, which presented a huge problem uh, for, for you know, our clients and, and employers across the state. So these guidelines were supposed to be a big help, but what happened after these draft guidelines came out in September? Basically, the claimants bar and claimants in general uh, came knocking down the door of Albany and said, what is going on? You can't do this. Um, And actually, in in putting out these second guidelines, the board has released numbers for what exactly the pushback was. I know that uh, in court, we at hearing points. I know in Brooklyn there was a there was a protest outside where claimants and attorneys were present. Right, right. Hopog too, I think. There was people up in Albany and Menans uh, protesting up there as well. I know this was a big event for not only the claimants bar but also for organized labor to get involved because obviously they have a large uh, employee membership. All potential injured workers pushing back, uh, basically arguing that this was affecting injured workers in a negative way. Um, essentially arguing that. For the most part, it seems like they just wanted it to remain the same, and they were arguing that there should be no changes. Right, and why not? Why not would they want it to remain the same? It was essentially a situation where uh, they were you know, recouping a windfall, right? And we talk about uh, workers' compensation indemnity benefits as wage replacement, and it doesn't make sense when they aren't actually in need of their wages being replaced. But uh, I know you actually have some stats on this, Declan, that you brought to my attention um, what were some of the reasons given or what were some of the complaints made by uh, the claimants bar, the, you know, the injured workers um, associations and, and unions? Well, just to start off, the chair of the board following the first uh, initial proposed guideline received over 400 formal written comments via SurveyMonkey, email comments, and regular mail. Additionally, they've received almost 2,000 form letters uh, through website forms, approximately 400 form letters from individuals, a petition signed by about 8,000 people and approximately 17,000 postcards. Now, clearly there was a lot of uh, organization good, behind this. Good couple months for the postcard industry, huh? <laughs> you just think of the cost yeah, involved in these postcards. <laughs> uh, but obviously the board, the board has responded to it. So, um, And I, they're basically with the second round is telling people if they have an issue, pr- raise your issues now because we'll take those into consideration. I don't for a second think that they're going to get the same response from employers and carriers because just the nature of the beast, if you think about it, the amount of people that are affected by this as injured workers and organized labor, they're just never going to get the same revolt from employers. That's that's an important point. Uh, I, I want to come back to that because uh, you raised uh, some good issues that we can certainly discuss. Uh, but let's talk about this second draft of the guidelines, right? So we have the board hearing complaints from people across the board. I know they actually mentioned that uh, self-insured employers and carriers objected to the notion that pain being a part of uh, those bucket categories, um, implementations were a problem because pain is subjective. Uh, so there did seem to be uh, some objections across the board. I know that the business council was very uh, adamant about certain uh, parts that were uh, 
incorrect or uh, unfair to the defense side. But let's talk about these second uh, draft of guidelines. They came out in November. I actually remember seeing it uh, across my feed, I think Thanksgiving morning, and I I didn't know whether I should be thankful for an opportunity to do this podcast or thankful that I have more reading material or thankful that, uh, you know, I, maybe I had uh, no other time, I guess, which maybe I shouldn't be thankful for. But the second draft of guidelines, anything that pop out uh, to you, Declan, as to why uh, they're better, worse? Well, I guess we can, we can officially say they're, they're not better for us, but any, any changes that pop out to you? Yeah, I think right off the board, initially, uh, employers and carriers were very excited by the fact that there's finally some reform coming to the workers' compensation system. And mainly, I think primarily, these, these massive lump sums, sec, uh, schedule loss of use awards where claimants had minimal lost time. And they were hoping that there's going to be some changes where that would be reduced. But unfortunately, this the second draft of the guidelines pretty much look like they're very almost identical in parts to the uh, – the guidelines that are currently in place, not the first uh, draft of the proposed guidelines, but the ones that are actually the law now. So some people, I think, are whole, they're scratching their heads saying the, the legislator required this to be revised, saying that you must draft revisions taking into consideration advancements in medical technology and medical procedures. And here we are uh, seven months after those propo- that legislation saying bring into law n- new changes – and there really are no changes. Yeah, the, the, the proposed draft is a beautiful-looking document. There's some <laughs> nice graphics in there. Some nice tables and charts. That's, that's really where the changes went to, it looks like. I mean, from the most part, there are – I've noticed some very small things. I, I mean, not should, shouldn't say small to downplay. There's, there's some significant change with respect to rotator cuff injuries and meniscal tears, which aren't automatic, schedulable uh, considerations, which they were in the past. But – for the most part, I think you have to look at this very closely before you start realizing what actually has changed. Yeah, it actually might be a good exercise to take them side by side and go extremity by extremity and see what has actually changed. You're definitely right that there's not too much of a change. You know, there's back to that greater emphasis on range of motion, which leads to a lot of symptom magnification and, and certainly noncompliance with uh, our IMEs who, want, who think that there is more range of motion than uh, is actually being presented to them. Uh, that's certainly a problem. But you did mention two uh, areas that are not in this uh, guidelines that are currently part of the law now, rotator cuff tears and meniscal tears. I actually would say that we see them a lot in our cases uh, for, you know, compensable reasons and reasons that we may think are not related to our claim, right? Uh, And the problem with the rotator cuff tear in today's guidelines is that with or without surgery, you're going to get 10 to 15% of the arm, right? So if we think of the arm as a total of 312 weeks, 10% is already 31.2, and then if you add another 5%, which doctors will look at and say, oh, I can add a max 15% and give this uh, claimant more money, they're going to give a 15% without surgery right off the bat. So that's, what, 46.6 weeks? Uh, 312 total to get to 15%, and then put in a max rate of you know, $870, you're looking at an award that is in the five digits easily without any lost time. 
right? And if that's not in the current guidelines, we can look at that as a little bit of a win, right? No, I definitely agree that the fact that that's not a spe- special consideration that's automatically added on for any rotator cuff injury, that's, that's definitely pretty significant for employers and carriers. Because currently, as the regulations are drafted, or the guidelines are drafted, if you have a meniscal tear and you get it repaired by surgery, you're automatically uh, going to get a 75 to 10% schedule loss of use. And the new proposed guidelines completely remove that. So um, you're not automatically getting a schedule loss of use of 75 to 10% just because you had a meniscal tear that was repaired. And I think that's important because it takes into account that it's one of the more minor knee surgeries, if a knee surgery can be deemed minor, that we're not just granting you that minimum basis for schedule loss of use. And it makes sense, right? Because if you haven't lost a lot of time from work, then it's more likely that a minor surgery, again, relatively minor surgery, will allow you to uh, recoup a full-duty job, maybe even the same pre-accident job. And also with regards to knees, there's the whole total knee replacement issue, which is also another significant change. So under the old or the current guidelines, uh, pretty much guarantee that in New York, if you have a total knee replacement, you're going to get a 50 to 55% schedule loss of use. That's the, it says that word for word in the, in the guidelines. <laughs> right. That's actually one of the worst uh, automatic findings, right? A total knee replacement. They actually say, right, the average total knee replacement starts off uh, with, you know, a certain amount of uh, bone loss that grants you uh, an automatic uh, 10 to 15 percent, then added on to the range of motion defects, saying that all total knee replacements get you 50 to 55, which is a problem because then they can go into loss of wage earning capacity territory if they're out of work. Right. So under the new proposed guidelines, uh, a good outcome. So again, we're getting a sub- subjective territory, but a good outcome would result in a schedule loss of use of 35 percent. So automatically. We're looking at a 15 percent to 20 percent savings for employers and carriers if it's a good outcome. Again. We're going to be fighting over what a good outcome is and what the restrictive, what the uh, range of motion restrictions are. Um, but under the new guidelines, a total knee replacement has three potential outcomes. A good outcome is 35% schedule loss of use. A fair outcome, which is basically adding to the, uh, the percentage based on r- range of motion findings. And then a poor outcome, the maximum it says under the guidelines would be a 80% schedule loss of use. Right. That's a good point because <laughs> we're dealing with an assumed... Uh, idea that these guidelines, these new draft guidelines, aren't actually good. But if we understand that, there are some little nicks and and uh, differences in the in these guidelines compared to what we have now, compared to uh, what we can do. Right. So, what can we do to actually combat schedule loss of use problems uh, in general? I know we talked about this on on the last episode that you were on, but I'm thinking. Take a case now and a case post-draft uh, guidelines, so January 1st, 2018 accidents, right? What do, what do we do when we have a case that's coming up that we know will end in schedule loss of use? Well, in the typical case, we're telling client, get an IME. and Get, get out in front of this before the claimant, potentially. I mean, it's, this is a case-by-case situation. Um, if a claimant's not represented, then you may want to see if they pursue this themselves and get their own permanency report. Right, and I think that's important because it's you know, we're we're talking about uh, your risk profile, right? Like how how much do you want to close a case now, 
or wait for a case that may not actually get a schedule lawsuit use opinion. It really depends on where your interests lie. But I think, first of all, being aware of that problem is certainly the first jump off, right? Like if you know that this person has a knee injury or an elbow injury and they're back to work and represented by an attorney, we all know that that case is going to get a schedule loss of use opinion, right? That's the presumption at least. Right. So those cases, you might actually lean towards getting the IME earlier or once that six years to uh, six, six months rather to one year from date of accident or date of surgery uh, becomes apparent. So being aware of it is the first uh, jump off first. I, I don't like seeing cases where, you know, like, oh, well, they're back to work. Like, let's close it. Th- those cases are going to be reopened. So I, I think we should uh, look at those cases as a way to uh, settle earlier rather than later. But I mean, did you have, yeah, so I was gonna, that? I was going to say that, and especially in a case with like, a, for instance, we were talking about total knee replacements. That's one of the cases where we know it's usually going to have a fairly significant schedule loss of use award. So Maybe not rush out to get an IME six months post-surgery. Let the person continue to uh, recuperate and be at their optimal, the, the best they're going to be potentially. And I, most cases, I would say that's going to be closer to a year than six months, especially for a major surgery like uh, total knee replacement. That's a good caveat, right? I don't want to say that they're going to definitely reach MMI six months after a surgery. Um, maybe that might be the case if they're back to work and both doctors are aware of that fact and they can use that to... Uh, uh, formulate an, IM, uh, an MMI opinion, but you're right. That's a good caveat. You don't necessarily want to waste money on an IME when you know that they're not going to be uh, at permanency. Or even if they are at permanency, potentially they could their range of motion, I mean, just general walking about and doing activity presumably will help to strengthen your knee and get, and we're just using the knee as a, as a basis, but just every, the activities of daily living um, and doing your regular job may result in range of motion improving over time and therefore having a more favorable schedule loss of use. Right. I mean, we do have to buttress that against, you know, the idea that it could get worse, right? Of like, course. You, know, you could request a second surgery or maybe the, the doctor screwed up and there's a loose body in there. Uh, but obviously you guys know uh, that, that those are factors for any type of case. Uh, but that is a good point, Declan. We want to make sure that we're getting IMEs at the right time and in the right scenario. Uh, so that you, they're best used for your cases. Okay, so we kind of went over the timeline that the board has uh, developed. Uh, we know that some uh, iteration of these guidelines, most likely these this current guidelines, uh, are going to be accepted in January 1st, 2018. I, I'm really thinking that there just isn't enough time for enough comments or maybe enough postcards to be sent to the board to really make another change before January 1st. So I, I really think that the iteration we have now is going to be in place. Do you agree, disagree? I mean, just think about the timeline here. So they rolled out, they, they rolled out the second proposed guidelines uh, the Friday before Thanksgiving. So they now have a 45-day window. The new guidelines or the new proposed guidelines that they've put in place has a common period of 45 days. These become, the, the, the common period closes as of December 22nd, which... Uh, that's the Friday before Christmas for those who are celebrating Christmas. And then the new rollout is supposed to take place. And the legislative says that this is supposed to take, that these are supposed to come into place as of January 1st. So, I mean, we don't have a time for a third proposed period for comments 
uh, for people to send their 17,000 postcards to the board. <laughs> um, unless, I, I mean, they could, I guess, theoretically have some type of window where they say, we're doing this and we know we're going to do it, but here's a third proposed plan. I just do not see that happening. Right. Theoretically, they could adopt this iteration of the guidelines as the emergency guidelines to use starting January 1st, 2018, and then say they're going to work on a third draft. But I think that this is it. Uh, I think it's just, you know, using our experience uh, to, to guide us here. I, I really think that this iteration of the guidelines are going to be what we're working with in January 1st, 2018 and going forward. So understanding that, uh, taking time to uh, recover from this obvious uh, obvious uh, kick to the gut, we are going to play Guess the Outcome today. Uh, Declan has done very well in this game in the past, so he knows what we're dealing with. Five facts uh, about a, uh, a specific case. And I'm going to ask him how the appellate division uh, decided. So we have a claimant who had right knee surgery to p- repair a meniscus tear in 2005. Uh, this surgery was not work-related. The second fact is that he sustained a work-related injury to the same knee, the right knee, in 2007. He then underwent right knee surgery in relation to the work accident. Fourth fact is that both parties' doctors concluded that apportionment was appropriate. And the fifth fact is that the law judge and the board panel affirmed a one-third apportionment to the 2005 non-work accident. So the claimant appeals, right? Um, What do you think the appellate division would decide in this case? Uh, Based on the facts you presented, I would say they should find that apportionment does apply because this is uh, a scheduled loss of use body part. I believe you said the left knee or was it the left shoulder? Right knee, actually. Right, right knee. So not listening very well here. I got the gist of it. <laughs> so basically a scheduled body part with that, if the injury happened in 2005 and it was work-related, it would have been compensable. Um, even though it wasn't compensable, it wasn't work-related, uh, they have the ability to portion it to a, a not. Basically, if you have an injury to a body part that's a scheduled body part and it was a work injury and it would have been compensable, we have the ability to portion when it is a work injury for a subsequent injury. Okay, so you're going to guess that the third department affirmed the board panel. Correct. That would be correct. Uh, Not the hardest set of facts for you, you, but you still knocked it out of the park. I I think the key takeaway here is whether that non-work injury would have been, uh, well, I guess would have received a schedule loss of use opinion had it been a work accident, right? Because then... You, we can't reward the claimant for having a schedule loss of use in, inclusive of a right knee surgery that happened before the accident, right? Right. So basically, if you already had a pre, pre-surgery right knee and then you injure it again while working for the employer, it makes perfect sense that there would be some, some – again, we presume in workers' comp if you have a right knee surgery that you're going to have some type of permanency. We, no one gets 100% better. So in the same set of circumstances, if they had a right knee surgery – prior to the work accident that was non-work related, the presumption would be that they would have had a, some type of permanent disability then. And I think the, the last interesting part about this case is that both doctors found that apportionment was appropriate. Usually that case isn't going to the appellate division. I think, you know, if I could play, make a little guess, maybe it could be a case where a claimant's really telling his, his firm to go to the third department and get 
that final decision because I don't know how many claimants firms are really going to, on their own, tell a claimant to appeal a case where their own doctor finds that their current <laughs> schedule should be apportioned to a non-work injury. And I'll, I'll be honest, I mean, it seems it's not a common case where, yeah, the carrier usually gets an IME that says apportionment's applicable and gives an apportionment opinion, but most of the time, in cases I've ever dealt with, the claimant never produces a permanency report with respect to apportionment, even when there's a direction to do so. I've had cases right. where or they, they just, just say no apportionment. Right. Right. So usually you're fighting over that, uh, and you'd have to do a lot more work than what uh, the carrier did in this case, because you'd have to prove, one, that the injury was uh, indicative of a schedule loss of use had it been a work accident, and that it still hadn't been fully resolved to get an apportionment back, uh, it does seem not like not the type of case that would go to the appellate division, but it still presents a good learning lesson for us. We want to make sure that um, we know about prior claims, accidents, injuries that would necessarily lead to a schedule loss of use opinion and decrease your future exposure going forward. Okay, so we did that. Uh, we went over the guidelines uh, both drafts in response to the April 2017 bill, uh, and we talked about the takeaways uh, of this appellate division case. Um, is there anything else you think we need to discuss, Declan? I think just with respect to the new proposed guidelines, uh, I guess the main takeaway I can say is that, especially after going over it today and discussing and reviewing closer, there's some major things that uh, claimants obviously went on with respect to uh, the rollback from the first set of proposed guidelines to the second set, but there are some major, pretty significant changes to the proposed guidelines that, would, if they take effect, that would uh, be beneficial for carriers and employers. So I guess the best, whenever you talk about settlements, whenever, whenever neither party is 100% happy, that's the best settlement. I'm not going to say that we should be happy with this, but it's, it's better than, uh, obviously, the current guidelines that are currently in place, um, but not as favorable as the first set that were potentially ro- going to be rolled out. Yeah, and I, I totally agree. I, you know, you, you brought up uh, how it kind of kept some of the uh, current law in place. We're still going to have to be aggressive on that front uh, because those uh, those cases that are simply range of motion, you know, abduction 90 degrees of the shoulder, 40% schedule loss of use of the arm, will have to be defended on a really aggressive uh, basis. But uh, you're right. We, we can't just throw it away and assume that nothing uh, has gotten better. Uh, I think the board did do some good in eliminating some of the more common injuries that lead to high schedules, uh, but we'll have to keep working on our end to make sure that uh, exposures are as low as possible. So, Declan, thanks for coming on today. Uh, We're going to wish happy holidays to uh, all of our listeners. Uh, Hopefully there are more than just me and my mother. Um, And I guess you, you're obligated to listen, although I don't even know if you will. I don't know if I can listen to my own voice again. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, thanks, everybody. Happy holidays. And uh, we'll see you in the new year, 2018.